Good morning again. Uh, if you are here visiting with us, or if you're not visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, the point I'm trying to make is if you don't have a Bible, that's when, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles there on the table, if you would like one. Uh, okay, uh, we are continuing on in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so if you have your copy of the Scriptures open, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. We read God's word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let me me pray again for us briefly. Lord, we pray that you would grant us strength to comprehend the seriousness and the weight of these words. It is a difficult subject to consider. And I feel the weight and and the burden of preaching this subject matter. So I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would nourish us, that you would help us. I, I know that if anything good will happen here this morning, it will be because of your spirit at work in us. So glorify your name, glorify your son, and transform us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, Hell is real. I begin with that statement because for many people, including Christians, maybe even some of you, hell is obscure and controversial and uncertain and impractical. While hell is in some ways impossibly difficult to talk about, I want to begin by just plainly stating what this passage teaches, and that is that hell is real. It's as real as the tiles underneath your feet. It's as real as the clothes on your body. It is as real as the breath in your lungs. Hell is real. 
that, that's a statement that can no longer be assumed, isn't it? I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the doctrine of hell is one of the most disputed doctrines in our contemporary context. Theological liberals find the doctrine of hell inconsistent with the nature of God as loving. How can a, a God who is love condemn someone to an eternity of punishment? Atheists and and naturalistic materialists view hell as an antiquated, medieval, and manipulative doctrine meant to uh, oppress people through religious institutions. Uh, They believe it's a a useless doctrine in an enlightened, scientific world and should be discarded. Then, of course, you have pop culture's estimation of hell. Tell me if these words sound familiar to you. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. I think that captures well the cavalier attitude many people have towards hell. And then finally, there are evangelicals, or maybe even more narrowly, conservative theological Protestants who treat hell like it's Jesus' dirty little secret. And they don't think about it, and they don't talk about it. The problem, of course, with that is that Jesus talks about hell a lot. And he doesn't speak about hell metaphorically or um, abstractly, but he speaks about hell as an actual and an awful reality. I've, I've wondered why Jesus talks about hell so much. And I think it's because Jesus, more than anyone, knows the awful reality of hell, and therefore he knows what's at stake. That being said, I come to this subject apprehensive and, and with much trembling. Not because I think the scriptures are in any way unclear on the doctrine of hell, but I am exceedingly aware of the weight of the subject and of the terrifying implications of the doctrine of hell. This sermon happens to be a really good example of why we at JCF of Williamstown believe in the systematic and exegetical preaching through books of the Bible. I would not choose to preach on hell. I would not pick this text to preach out of. But we've arrived at this this passage and though it's hard to think about hell and it's even harder to talk about it, we believe as Paul says to Timothy, that that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In, In God's wisdom, it's good for us to take 45 minutes and consider the reality of hell. So here we are trusting that God will, by his Holy Spirit, strengthen us and and nourish us and nourish our souls to stand firm in the faith 
by considering the reality of hell together from the word he inspired. So to that end, I want us to consider hell under three headings. The reality of hell, the way to hell, and the way to escape hell. The reality of hell, the way to hell, and the way to escape hell. So first, the reality of hell. In Mark's gospel, as as Jesus draws nearer to the time of his death, his teaching becomes more urgent and, and more intense. He is preparing his disciples to be the first leaders in the church, and he means to get across to them in no uncertain terms what is at stake. In this passage, Jesus sets out for his disciples with utter seriousness the deadly consequences of sin, namely an eternity of conscious suffering in hell. There are three main ways the scriptures speak about hell, and interestingly, we find all three of those ways here in this passage, three, three angles or three lenses we can look through to understand what hell is all about. The first main way that the scriptures describe hell is through the lens of divine punishment. Divine punishment. Look again at verse 43. It says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Throughout the scriptures, fire signifies God's divine retribution and punishment. Uh, you, you may remember in the Old Testament when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, we read uh, these words in Genesis 19, that he rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Or even in the, the, the call to worship this morning in Psalm 11, verse 5 and 6, we read, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And then in the New Testament, this connection between fire and punishment becomes even more explicit. In Matthew 25, Jesus is sitting on his glorious throne and he is separating the sheep from the goats the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And in 2541 we read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he repeats their fate in verse 46 saying this, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the eternal fire signifies eternal punishment inflicted by God on all those who have rebelled against him. And while some have tried to avoid the plain and clear teaching of the text, what we see here is that what the scriptures are clearly talking about is a conscious, spiritual, and physical punishment of God forever, without end. What Jesus speaks of is something unimaginably horrifying. 
some have asked how literal Jesus' descriptions of hell should be taken. Is it, is it literal fire? Is it literal darkness? Is it literal weeping and gnashing of teeth? I, I, I don't have the answer to that question. It could be. I, I don't know. But if it's not literally that, it's worse than the images he's using to describe it. To describe it. There will be no comfort found in trying to make Jesus' words figurative here. He is describing a conscious experience of such inconceivable physical and spiritual anguish at the hands of God for all eternity that if we were to be able to just peer into it for one moment, it would absolutely ruin you. But some may argue that this is an injustice on God's part. How can he exact an eternity of punishment against finite creatures who have committed finite sins? Is it, is it like a parent who subjects a child to a week of time out for stealing a piece of candy? Is it really the case that God is willing to send people into an eternity of suffering because of sins they committed over the course of 80 years? The answer is yes. Yes, it is the case. And brothers and sisters, as uncomfortable as it is to think about, even right now, there are people, people that you have known that are experiencing the reality that I'm trying to describe to you right now. That should humble us and sober us. What those who question the justice of hell don't realize is that sin is ultimately committed against an eternal and infinitely worthy worthy being. So it is worthy of an eternal and infinite punishment. You see, on the one hand, we want God's work of redemption in Jesus Christ to have eternal implications. Right? We want forgiveness and we want adoption and our reconciliation with God to pass all the way into eternity. We want this to be promises that move into eternity forever and ever. So I ask, should his judgment of sinners then not also continue into eternity? At the bottom of this reality is God's nature as a just judge. When we see injustice in this world, we long for justice to be done. We long for things to be made right and for evil to be punished. And because God is just, he is unwilling that sin should go unpunished. And he meets out that punishment in hell. One author put it this way. Hell is God's eternal no to sin. Hell is God's eternal no to sin. Brothers and sisters, do not think that you will feel pity or sorrow for the condemned. I I know it's hard to imagine, but the scriptures tell us on that day that we will rise up and praise God for his justice. That's not to say that there will be a gleeful pleasure in the suffering of others, but there will be a full joy in the exacting And in the seeing of God's justice done. 
The scriptures describe hell as punishment, but they also describe hell as destruction. In verse 42, we read, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The point Jesus is trying to make is that in the end, if you are one that has caused a little one to sin or to stumble or to fall, a gruesome and awful death like having a 1,500-pound millstone hung around your neck and then being thrown into the sea will be better than what is coming. In other words, the destruction that is experienced in hell is far worse than the, than the destruction experienced in even the worst kind of death. Throughout the scriptures, one of the main consequences of sin is death, destruction, and ruin. God, of course, warns Adam, you know, in the garden, that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Everyone knows Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is the most destructive force in God's world because sin takes people to hell where that destruction will be fully and eternally experienced. Jesus makes this point when he says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Similarly, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, Starting in verse 9, of those who have not obeyed the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Now here again we see the, 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 the possibility of misunderstanding the doctrine of hell and, and many respectable theologians have. In effect, they have argued that if hell means destruction that at some point those who are experiencing that destruction must be finally destroyed, that they must pass out of existence. This is a view called annihilationism, but it will not conform to the scriptures. You see, even in the passage that we just read in 1 Thessalonians, the destruction that is experienced is an eternal destruction. It is a forever destruction. It is precisely the constant and perpetual experience of destruction with ever, without ever being fully destroyed. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, put it this way. The wicked in hell shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? The word ever breaks the heart. So, so what exactly is the destruction that Jesus is talking about? A theologian Christopher Morgan argues, and I think he's right, that the destruction of hell is not about the end of one's, uh, the end of one's existence, but it's about the losing of one's essence or nature. In other words, it's to have the image of God so utterly destroyed that purpose and reason for existence is totally abolished and lost and eradicated. Morgan puts it this way, hell is final and utter loss, ruin, waste, 
Destruction is a graphic picture that those in hell have failed to embrace the meaning of life and have wasted it. Trying to find life in themselves and sin, they forfeited true life. Only ruin remains. In the the garbage heap of eternity where the carcasses of God's destruction continue to die forever. It's in that place where as verse 48 says, the worm never dies but ever lives to feast on the dying flesh of the damned. But even that is not enough to capture the horrors of hell because we also need to see hell through the lens of banishment. We see hell is punishment. Hell is destruction. But hell is also banishment. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. In these two verses, gaining entrance into life, eternal life, and entrance into the eternal kingdom is contrasted with being thrown into hell. It's the kind of imagery Jesus gives us in Matthew 22. Do you remember in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus tells the parable of a king who holds a feast, a banquet. But the king comes across a man who is not invited to the feast and who is not properly clothed. And eventually when the king finds this man, he says to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's it's this casting into the outer darkness That is in view when Jesus speaks of those who will not receive entrance into the presence of God's majesty, but will instead be thrown into hell. We see this also in Matthew 7, where Jesus pictures the last day. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, that God's uh, banishment is a central facet of hell should not be a surprise to us. Again, if we were to go back into the garden, we see that when Adam and Eve sin, the consequences are that they are banished out of the garden. And so part of what it means to experience hell is to be utterly banished by God out of his glorious and kind presence forever. So if punishment and destruction emphasize the active experience in hell, then banishment emphasizes what those in hell miss out on for all eternity. Namely, unhindered fellowship with God. Can you think of a time when you missed out on something? Can you think of a time when there was something that you really, really wanted to do, but you missed out on it? Okay, it's that experience, except the thing that you are missing out on is infinitely wonderful, and you will never, ever get a second chance. Again, Morgan puts it this way. They are forever banished from his majestic presence and completely miss out on the reason for their existence, to glorify and know their creator. It is to be forever on the outside looking in 
with no chance to enter. All three of these realities are captured in the word Jesus uses that is translated here as hell. It is the Greek word Gehenna. That word harkens back to the valley of Hinnom in the, in the Old Testament. The valley of Hinnom was a place where the Israelites uh, idolatrously and, and wickedly sacrificed people, even children, to the pagan god Moloch. And for their unspeakable evil and idolatry, God promised to turn what was once a beautiful valley into the valley of slaughter, where the carcasses of the wicked would pile up to be eaten by birds and beasts, and where a hungry maggot could always find a meal. King Josiah desecrated that valley by turning it into a garbage dump where the smoke of its refuse constantly went up. It was a putrid place associated only with evil, punishment, death, and refuse. And it's this image that Jesus picks up to describe hell. A place of fire, a place of ruin, a place of destruction, and a place of darkness. A human wasteland, as one author put it. Brothers and sisters, hell is real. And it should absolutely terrify us. If there's one thing that we can walk away from this passage with, it is the fact that Jesus is deadly serious about sin and hell. And he wants us to embrace that urgent seriousness. We've seen the reality of hell, but now I want you to see in this passage the way to hell. Verse 42, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The word that's translated sin here and throughout the passage is the Greek word skandalizo, which most nearly means to stumble or to fall. The, the, the force of the word has a finality to it, a stumble that results in a final fall, a destruction, if you will. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is, is giving his disciples a dire warning of the dangers and the consequences of a fall that ultimately results in hell. And, and you need to hear this morning, you need to hear this morning that sin leads to hell. Sin leads to hell. I know we're all good theologians who know God doesn't lose any that he saves. But have you considered the possibility that one of the ways that God preserves his people is by giving them such a fear and dread of hell that they make war against their sin and cling to him in faith? Jesus' warning to his disciples is real and it is severe. There are real dangers that threaten the disciples and there are real dangers that threaten you. The first danger Jesus addresses are those dangers outside the disciples. There very well may be a connection here between the little children in verse 42 and, and the ch children that, or the child that Jesus puts in the midst of the disciples in the previous passage. But what's clear is that the little ones include the disciples because they were the ones who were believing in him, as weak as that belief has been. And so Jesus is alerting the disciples both to the, to the dangers of causing others who are trusting in Jesus to stumble 
but also to the real possibility of, of others causing them to, to stumble. And so there's a, there's a real sense, sense in which Jesus' disciples need to remain sober, alert, and aware of their vulnerability. But what's most emphasized in this passage are not the dangers found outside, but the dangers found within. Look again at verse 43. It says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here, Jesus' intensity is on full display. He speaks of cutting off hands and feet and tearing out an eye. Uh, This is an instance where Jesus is definitely not speaking literally. This is not a command to start maiming yourself or amputating limbs. Rather, Jesus uses the languages of hands and feet and eyes to, to speak of what we do and where we go and what we see. In the most vivid terms, Jesus is saying, if you find sin in any of these areas, in what you do, in where you go, in what you see, uh, to put it simply, if you find sin in any area of your life, you need to make a war on that sin and put it to death. Why? Because sin leads to hell. Jesus' expectation is that the ones who are believing in him will make violent war against any and all sin in their lives. Not literally cutting off limbs and tearing out eyes, but but making no provision for the flesh. He expects that his disciples will go to the greatest lengths to starve their own sinful desires, to to slay their own sinful lusts, that through real self-denial and suffering, they will do what is necessary to defeat sin in their lives. Brothers and sisters, for Jesus, you cannot be too committed to putting sin to death in your life because the stakes cannot be any higher. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Death and life, eternal death and eternal life are at stake. Brothers or sisters, is there sin in your life that you've grown grown complacent with? Is there sin in your life that you have given up trying to to fight against and have just come to accept your failure and your weakness and your sin in that area? Jesus' teaching here is that Christians cannot be at home with sin. They cannot come to grips with sin. They cannot stop fighting sin. They cannot stop warring against it. They cannot stop fleeing it. In his book, Sin and Temptation, John Owen writes, when we realize a constant enemy of the soul abides within us, what diligence and watchfulness we should have. How woeful is the sloth. How woeful is the sloth. 
and negligence then of so many who live blind and asleep to this reality of sin. There is an exceeding efficacy and power in the indwelling sin of believers for it constantly inclines itself towards evil. Do you understand what he's saying? Indwelling in you is sin, is, is, an, old, uh, is an old man who constantly inclines to evil. So he says we need to be awake then if our hearts would know the ways of God. Our enemy is not only upon us as it is with Samson, but it is also in us. Then in another work he asks, do you mortify? That is, do you kill your own sinful flesh? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. But perhaps you're saying, if killing my sin were as easy as amputating a limb or tearing at an eye, I would do it. But killing sin isn't that easy, is it? Why? Because Sin doesn't ultimately come from your hand, and it doesn't ultimately come from your feet, and it doesn't ultimately come from your eye. Your sin resides in your heart. It's baked into you. It's a a part of your DNA. it's, It's inside of you. We saw just a few chapters ago in in Mark 7, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, your problem isn't that you've been, that you have a few misbehaviors. The problem is that you are corrupted through and through. You have sin, the, the very poison of hell, coursing through your veins. And, and let me be as clear as I can be. What Jesus is saying in our passage this morning is that those who are conquered by their sin will be ultimately conquered forever in hell. It is only by conquering your sin and putting your sin to death that you can escape hell. And so we've seen the reality of hell, the way to hell, and now I want to tell you the good news. I want to tell you the good news that there is a way to escape hell. To some degree, I hope you're saying to yourself at this point, I have no hope of escaping hell. If I'm reading this passage right, what Jesus seems to be saying is you're either going to get violent with your sin and eradicate it from your life, or you're going to find yourself in hell. There is no third option. But the problem for us is that we we can't kill sin on our own. It's, It's in our hearts. It's in our DNA. It's what we are. Killing sin our lives is like cutting off Hydra's heads. Every time we cut off a head, two more appear. And so it seems that the only future for us sinful wretches that we are is an eternity in hell. 
But Jesus gives us little hints in this passage that there is a way to escape, that hell doesn't have to be the final destiny for us. Can, can you imagine what it would be like, what, what, what sweet news it would be like for those in hell to hear of a way of escape? That for all eternity, they're, they're only, the only thing that they can look forward to is punishment and destruction and banishment, but then to hear a word of entrance. How sweet that would be. In verse 43 and 45, Jesus speaks of entering into life. And in verse 47, he speaks of entrance into the kingdom for those who slay their sin. Surely the disciples must have been thinking, and, and maybe even now you are thinking, I can't defeat my own sin. I am utterly helpless and useless to put to death these sinful deeds of the flesh. But, but then Jesus gives us another clue in verse 42. He refers to little ones who believe in him. Little ones who believe in him. Knowing what you know about hell, isn't it comforting to hear Jesus refer to you as a little one? What is he saying? He's saying you are absolutely helpless in and of yourself. We don't like to think of ourselves as little because littleness is equated with dependence and we want to be independent. But, but here against the backdrop of the overwhelming reality of hell, against the backdrop of eternal punishment and destruction and banishment and your complete inability to deliver yourself, Jesus, who is infinitely great, calls us little ones, helpless on their own, but safe in him. And how are they made safe in Jesus? How are those little ones made safe in Jesus? Verse 42, by believing in him. Brothers and sisters, he descended into hell in your place. I know some are hesitant to recite that portion of the Apostles' Creed because they think that what's being taught is the unbiblical idea that in between Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, he traveled to hell to like liberate the patriarchs or something. But that's not what the writers of the Apostles' Creed intended to say, and that's not what we confess but what we do confess is a Jesus who bore all of hell in your place. D do you remember the three descriptions of hell I gave you? Hell is divine punishment and retribution at the hands of a just judge for sin, for lawbreaking, for transgression. And so Jesus on the cross stands in your place and takes all of that divine punishment and wrath on himself. He, he is crushed under the full weight of God's hatred for sin. And the eternal infinite punishment that belonged to you falls on him. Because Christ took your penalty for you, by faith you are justified before God. It, it's as if you have perfectly killed sin every day of your life because of Christ's work 
It's as if you have perfectly avoided every temptation and killed every sin and mortified every sin. And so instead of divine punishment, you have become the recipients of an an eternal inheritance and reward. But hell is also eternal destruction at the hands of God who has promised to conquer all his enemies and destroy all evil. And though our sin has left us spiritually dead and headed for eternal death, Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place. His body is broken. His body is is mutilated. His heart stops beating. His lungs stop pumping. His body is crushed. He bore eternal destruction in your place. But though he was utterly destroyed in your place, he, he rose to life again on the third day. And by virtue of his identity as the risen Savior who conquered your sin, he poured out the Holy Spirit into your heart and he gave to you new birth, new life, a new heart that is no longer enslaved to sin but is free in Christ to say no to sin. And instead of experiencing an eternity of loss and waste and ruin as one who perpetually dies but is never dead, he purchases for you eternal life. And finally, hell is also banishment from the kind and glorious presence of God. Though because of our sin we are at enmity and alienated from God, deserving only to be cast out and barred from ever truly knowing God in his majesty, Jesus on the cross is the one who was forsaken and who was cast out and who was banished. And why? Why is it on the cross that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast out so that you might be brought in. Because Christ on the cross experienced eternal separation and exile. that The exile that you deserved, you have been brought near and reconciled to your heavenly Father. Because Christ was excluded, abundant provision has been made for your inclusion. And because Jesus was rejected, God welcomes you to come in and receive entrance into his kingdom to enjoy matchless pleasures of knowing him in all his glory forever. I began the service by reading these words from Psalm 11, 5 and 7. The Lord tests the righteous, but his whole hate, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. If you are in Christ by faith, you have been richly provided with a perfect righteousness, a right standing with him. So instead of dreading an eternity of conscious suffering, you have an eternity of beholding his face to look forward to. Instead of drinking the portion of the cup of eternal judgment, you you get to drink the cup of his salvation and the cup of his blessing. Brothers and sisters, when you know the grace of God in Christ Jesus this way and have had the Holy Spirit poured into your hearts, you are emboldened and empowered to kill your sin. 
Not, not as a way to earn God's approval. Hear me. Your sin killing is not a way that you earn God's approval. In Christ you already have it. And knowing that you long to slay everything in you that does not honor him. Our killing sin is not the requirement of our salvation, but it is the necessary consequence of it. We, we cannot be at home with sin that our Savior bled and died to pay for. And so Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown, fear, fear the awful reality of hell. Hell is real. But rejoice in knowing that by faith in Christ and through God's grace alone, this world is the closest you will ever get to hell. And you have only an eternity of life and joy and reward in his presence to look forward to. I love this verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For our God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, hell is real, but God is gracious and Jesus saves. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless these words that have just been spoken to nourish and strengthen your people. Help us to know the awful reality of hell. But give us such joy, such peace, such confidence and such resolve to kill our sin because we know that we have been the recipients of a perfect salvation. Because Jesus has done all that is necessary in bearing our hell for us to deliver us to you blameless, without guilt, that we might not receive punishment but reward that we might not be destroyed but receive eternal life and that we might not be banished but be welcomed in. Would you do this for your name's sake and for the joy of your people in you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.